Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Lost in Science for another week and we have a very science-filled half an hour lined up for you. Um, First of all, we're going to be speaking to a special guest, Dr Matt Currell, environmental engineer, about some of the environmental pressures in China. Um, And I think this is particularly pertinent given that Donald Trump, there are a lot of sort of rumours going around that maybe he might be dismantling the EPA. Have you seen that, Stu? Yeah, he seems to be trying to dismantle a whole bunch of environmental uh, government agencies, including the EPA and and NASA's uh, climate division and a whole bunch of other things as well. Yeah, and it's and it's terrifying. And so it'll it's it's interesting speaking to Matt about um sort of what happens in a country that hasn't had um environmental protections for a long time um and the sorts of the sorts of issues that they're now facing. So stay tuned for that interview. Um also up on the show, Stu, what are you going to be talking about this week? Well, I've I've been seeing some people panicking on the internet, which is pretty unusual, you've got to admit. But no, people worrying that, um, you know, there's a lot of panic about um, bees dying out and what we won't be able to have if bees die out. Yeah. Most of it's a bit of a, a beat up because the bees aren't actually dying out, according to science. But one of, the things the people, one of the things that people are worried about is chocolate. Chocolate needs pollination, and right. without That's pollinators, the top of everyone's there'll list. be no chocolate, and there'll be you know other things. But I spoke to Samantha Forbes from James Cook University, who studies the pollinators of chocolate, and she's found a way to increase the uh, the amount of chocolate you can get off chocolate farm so that's, is that right yeah it's pretty pretty interesting stuff a good uh, news story a good news story yes um and yeah you might be surprised we do grow chocolate in australia it's very very hard to come by but there is a little bit growing up there up in uh, in far north queensland i'm looking forward to hearing about that now speaking of uh chocolate um manisha <laughs> is continuing her series on uh, resolutions and how to keep them. And she's uh, talking about the psychology of um, getting yourself into various good habits. Uh, and she's talking this week about if-then planning. So actually making yourself, well, sort of forcing yourself into doing things to keep your uh, keep your New Year's resolutions um, going through the new year. Well, you won't need to force yourself to listen to the rest of the show because it sounds like it's all going to be gold. On with the show. <laughs> so your iPhone, your TV, Gore-Tex raincoat or that bike you bought for your kids at Christmas, all these things are probably made in China somewhere. But what do we really know about the environmental impact of production in a country so far away? and in particular, the effect it has on water quality. To talk to us about water pollution in China and why it should matter to us, I have Dr Matt Carroll with me, Senior Lecturer in Environmental Engineering at RMIT University. Matt, thanks so much for coming in to chat today. Great to be with you, Claire. So, Matt, you published a paper earlier this year, The Global Drain, 
uh, why China's water pollution problems should matter to the rest of the world. So why, why is China's groundwater so polluted? Um, well, there are a couple of major sources which have caused a pretty serious groundwater pollution crisis in China over recent years. The, the, the main sources of pollution are coming from wastes and emissions coming from industrial manufacturing operations. So it's things like petrochemical plants, um, you know, manufacture of electronics, um, residues from textiles, all these sorts of industries that have um, potentially harmful byproducts that um, are disposed of in waterways, in canals, in unlined drains and so on, and that seeps into the groundwater uh, and causes pollution. What sort of health effects is um, this sort of pollution, this sort of unprecedented pollution of the environment causing in China? Mm. So there's been some research carried out really over the last 10 years. There was a seminal study done in 2007 by the World Bank um, and the State Environment Protection Agency in China, and they looked at um, incidences of cancers in um, places throughout China and were able to, with some quite good detailed data, actually link particular types of cancer to exposure to pollutants in drinking water. And a lot of that drinking water comes from, from shallow groundwater wells in China. And so they found that there are particular cancers, particularly the cancers of the digestive tract, so um, stomach cancer, esophagus, liver, and a couple of other cancers that are actually generally fairly rare in the general population, but which are very disproportionately common amongst people um, living in areas with, with severely polluted water. Um, so we're talking quite high incidences of these types of cancers? That's right, yeah. So much, you know, vastly greater rates of cancer mor- morbidity and mortality in, in areas affected by, um, by water pollution. And so that sort of led to further research which documented this phenomenon called the cancer village, which is something that, um, you know, is now widely recognised both in the research world but also within the Chinese government, um, that there are these places called cancer villages where, you know, exposure mm. to pollution... Um, has led to you know much higher rates of cancer in the population compared to other parts of China, but also elsewhere in the world. So these cancer villages, they're being mapped and sort of documented on the basis of um, epidemiological data. And again, it's it's really clear that water pollution exposure is a really you know probably the primary contributor to, to the emergence of many of these cancer villages. What's the extent of these cancer villages? How widespread are they across China? So it's it's hard to get. I guess, the full extent of the problem, but there are certainly hundreds of these villages that have been documented throughout the Chinese countryside. Most experts would acknowledge that it's you know, probably well into the thousands. Do we have an idea about the specific chemicals and specific toxins present in the groundwater that are causing these issues? Yeah, it's, um, it's hard to link a particular pollutant to a particular health condition, mm. but there, there has been some work which has linked particularly high levels of, of nutrients, so you know the, the nitrogen and ammonia-type compounds, phosphate and so on, um, producing these algal toxins, which may contribute to or maybe a mechanism causing these um, stomach cancers. But I think more generally, you know, just the fact that you've got very high levels of a range of pollutants, so including things like heavy metals, including a range of organic contaminants that are known carcinogens, um, and including the, the easier to measure indicators like the nutrients and, and um, you know, bacterial indicators. It'll be some combination of those, those different pollutants that, that is, uh, is causing the increased incidence of these cancers. In terms of the Chinese government, do they have policies to address the issue of 
the cancer village and the extent of the problem? Yeah, so the, the cancer village phenomenon was first acknowledged in a policy document from the Environment Ministry in 2013, I think it was. Prior to that, the, the government had been always very cagey about admitting the existence of these cancer villages, but the, the evidence became overwhelming around that time. And it also, around that time, 2013, the Chinese government started taking a different stance towards pollution issues. So rather than sort of deflect and ignore the issue, um, there was a very, very you know, concerted effort by the Chinese government to address pollution issues. A lot of it was following all the media coverage of the, the smog epidemics and the big smog crises that were happening around that time. But so that's translated into a whole lot of government policies um, that include looking at um, air pollution, but also water pollution and soil pollution. Um, and they have these big 10-point plans, which got launched in 2015. 10-point plan for, for water pollution, one for soil, one for air pollution. And so the, there's a lot of effort to try and clean up China's waterways. The issue is that for water pollution, especially when we're talking about groundwater, the, the time that pollutants tend to spend in these systems is, is, is quite long. And so it's not easy to quickly clean up all the contaminants that have made their way down underground into these aquifers that are, that are being tapped. So it's great that we've got the policy turning point, but in terms of when the actual environmental improvements and then the health improvements, there are big delays between all of these things happening um, and actually translating to you know, a healthier, cleaner environment for, for China's people. In your article, you talk a bit about um, the idea of displacement of environmental harm. Mm. Um, can you talk a bit more about that in relation to, to China? Yeah, so this is a concept. There's a great book called China's Environmental Challenges that was written by Judith Shapiro, who's been looking at China's environmental issues for, for a long time. You know, I found this term in, in her book with in relation to China, talking about displaced environmental harm. And it, it's basically saying that people who are enjoying an economic benefit from China's big manufacturing boom tend not to be the people who are exposed to the pollution and have to suffer the health effects and, and the harm from that. Typically, the people who are worst affected tend to be those in um, sort of peri-urban or semi-rural areas where there's very little oversight and environmental protection you know, regulation. So I guess the idea of harm displacement is saying that there are people enjoying immense economic benefits through, um, through China's manufacturing sector. Including... Australians. Yeah, including many people buying cheap products that are yeah. manufactured in China, including people, you know, multinational companies that are profiting from being able to manufacture very cheaply in China. So the, these economic benefits flowing to people not necessarily living in China and people left behind over there in China who are, who are facing the, you know, the, the real consequences um, in terms of health effects. So obviously this isn't sustainable. This isn't going to be able to continue happening in China. Yeah, look, I think um, China's really reached a turning point in terms of what, it, what its citizens and also what its government will accept in terms of pollution. The interesting question for me, though, is, is how that changes. The sort of global economy sort of look to displace the harm to yet another part of the world rather than China, um, as China sort of cleans up and gets really strict on pollution control. Or does, you know, the, the root cause of the issue, which is, you know, addressing environmental practices and environmental regulation worldwide, no matter what jurisdiction your, you know, your, your business is based. Um, so, so that's really, I think, a, a crucial challenge for environmental sustainability that we're facing right now. And, and we should be talking about a lot more. In terms of Australians, how, how can we help bring about that change? Think global, act local. Um, I'd suggest that people, something simple you can do is just look into the supply chains for things that you're purchasing. Try and buy something that you know has been sustainably manufactured. 
There's some NGOs that have done some fantastic work over the last 15 years in China to actually trace, you know, the supply chain for things like textiles and electronics, name and shame polluting industries, get that information back to the multinational head offices like Apple and so forth in, in the US and put pressure on them to clean up the supply chain. And it's also about, you know, having the conversation. So arguing for more sustainable products, more sustainable models of economic growth. You know, if we want to have a, an economy that doesn't harm the environment and harm people's human health, there's a lot to be said for actually arguing that um, to, to our politicians and creating more awareness in, you know, the business world that, you know, it's not okay to set up a supply chain to start profiting from something that's, that's going to have harmful effects somewhere, um, whether it's here or whether it's in China or wherever it's um, being made. Thanks so much for coming and talking to us today, Matt. It's such a hugely important environmental issue that is often mm. overlooked. So thanks so much. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me, Claire. So today I'm continuing my mini-series on how, how to best change, break or make habits. Last week's tip was setting smaller goals. When we set smaller goals or targets within our larger plans, they become more achievable. We break our big dream of saving for a house or running a marathon into smaller goals, um, maybe setting aside a set amount of money each paycheck or running one more kilometer every week. And each time we complete our small goals, uh, not only do we feel accomplished and proud, but the release of dopamine is positively reinforcing the behavior and we're more likely to keep up with it. So that eventually our goals are within sight and we've accomplished what was impossible at one time. This week, I will move on to our next tip. Number two, incorporating new habits into your routine instead of trying to change your routine. If you're not a morning person, setting the clock a half hour earlier to go for a jog is just not going to happen. And I think a lot of us get caught in resolutions in this way. We see the version of ourselves that we want to be and we try to adjust our behaviors and routines so drastically to match these expectations, but we do them in a short time frame. But unfortunately, we're creatures of habit and making or breaking those habits and creating new ones is quite hard. So instead of flipping your behaviors, modify existing ones is likely to be easier to do and maintain. One of the best ways to do this is to use a technique called the if-then planning technique. This is also known as the stimulus response technique. If it is Monday, then I'll go for a run after work. If it is past three, then I won't have another cup of coffee. The idea here is that you're not making these bold, outright proclamations of a massive way you're going to change. Instead, you're tweaking your existing habits until your new habit sticks. It's also, yeah, it's kind of, uh, it sounds like it's kind of um, helping you make a decision that you were going to have to make anyway, yeah. but you go, oh, well, the decision's already, already made because it's after three, so I won't have another cup of coffee. Yeah, exactly. I don't have to make that decision, yep. so it makes it much easier. Yep. Yeah. You're actually um, stepping into tip number three there, Stu, which is uh, di which kind of dips into decision fatigue, but we'll have to wait until next week to okay. hear that one. With this idea of tweaking our habits um, until our new habits stick, we want to change our habits by making a slight addition to our existing routine. So when using the if-then pl if planning method, you're creating contingencies, which our brains are actually already wired to deal with. Once we set up an if-then plan, 
our minds will unconsciously scan the environment for the if, for the condition that we set up. So even if you're not paying attention, once we receive our stimulus, whether it's 3 p.m. or after 3 p.m., or if it's Monday or whatever your condition was, you kind of get this little mental reminder. If you've ever had that nagging feeling that you need to be doing something or you've forgotten somebody's birthday, a date reminds you of something. This is all of the this is um, the sort of contingencies we work with already in our mind. In 2011, Lally and colleagues uh, published a qualitative study on habit formation in psychology, health, and medicine. The authors found that even with tasks that seemed difficult at first, this automation made carrying out the tasks over the longer term easier. So could you even do that with your initial example? Like you could say, if my alarm goes off, I will get out of bed. Yeah. So it's like, I'm not, if, if my alarm goes off, I'm not going to hit snooze. Right. So that could, yeah, if you think that that's an actual manageable goal, I know for myself it's not. Like I lay in bed for like half hour before I actually get out of bed. So I have a second alarm to be like, okay, this is your actual get out of bed and get off of Reddit like alarm. So so it depends on you personally. So anyways, going back to that Lally and colleagues study, the authors evaluated the ability of participants to keep up with weight loss goals. At first, the participants all noted that the behavior was full of effort. So it was a it was a difficult behavior. Any sort of any modification to their routine was something that took a lot of effort for them. They had to make decisions, they had to really go through with it and really convince themselves to maintain the behavior. But the routine and conditioning provided by the if-then planning increased the automation behind the behaviors. This meant that enacting the desired behavior slowly took less and less effort. The authors actually also noticed that habits were more successful when they were formed in work-based context. So when you're able to tack your habit onto an existing routine that you already have in place, an existing structure you already have in place. They noticed that with the participants, um, weekends and holidays tended to disrupt their new behaviors and their existing, their, their attempted behavior. Um, this solidified the idea that tacking a new behavior onto an existing routine will help you maintain that new behavior. Okay, so like in work day, you normally have it. You work work by routine anyway. You have things to do at certain times. Exactly. And it's all, yeah. Yeah. So, so by you, adding something to that routine, mm, you, you're using the fact you have a routine to reinforce your behavior. So yeah. maybe maybe your um, behavior is that you want to go for a 15 minute walk over lunchtime. So you you know when lunchtime is, and you want to. So once it hits lunchtime, you don't have to do anything. Yeah, it's already lunchtime. That's what it's going to be, and you're going to go for your walk. You've made your decision that if it's lunchtime, then I'm going to go for a walk. Okay. So yeah, so that's my second tip for making and breaking habits: add the habit to your existing routine in a small, manageable task to help you change your behavior and achieve your goal. Next week, as I mentioned before, we will discuss decision fatigue. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you are listening to A Lost in Science. So I guess probably one of the most popular foods in the world is chocolate. And as you may or may not know, chocolate grows on trees. It literally does grow on trees. Some people are a bit worried that, you know, as the market for chocolate increases, as people have more money all over the world, there might be a chocolate shortage. But I have on the line with me Samantha Forbes uh, from James Cook University in Cairns, who is something of a chocolate expert. She works with Coco. Samantha, thanks for joining us on Lost in Science. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. You you actually research chocolate effectively. You you look at the cocoa plant. 
I do. Um, so I don't just look at the cocoa plant itself, but I actually specialise in the little insect that pollinates the flowers. And so without this insect, we don't have chocolate. And that little insect is called a midge. Or some people might know them best as sandflies, those little annoying flies that bite you. Without those little flies, we wouldn't have chocolate. And that's actually more what I research is these pollinators. Okay, so in, in Australia, is there much cocoa grown in Australia? No, actually. Our cocoa industry is, well, I'd call it a fledging industry. It's been um, sort of growing steadily since 1999. Um, I think at the moment we've got about 16 hectares in production, but don't quote me on that one. Um, so we're pretty small, um, and what we create here in Australia is a very boutique, all-Australian cocoa product. So although we don't have a lot, the quality of the product that we're producing in Australia is very, very high. So with 16 hectares only, um, I guess the, the growers that do exist would be interested in improving their yields from, from what they've already got planted and you've been yeah. doing some work on trying to do that, to, to boost the amount of cocoa you can get off each. Is, is it a tree? It's a tree. Yeah, it is a tree. And if you've never seen a cocoa tree, I would recommend that you Google them because they're um, quite a beautiful tree. And the fruits that they grow are just absolutely incredible. Um, so, yeah, I actually work with um, a few farmers up in North Queensland in an area that's called Mossman. And it's a, it's a very wet, tropical sort of area, so it's perfect for growing cocoa. And uh, some of the farmers um, up here have actually diversified away from other crops such as sugarcane. Most of the farmers here are sh- either sugarcane, banana or papaya farmers, and they're looking to diversify. And they picked up uh, cocoa being a unique product. Um, they thought it might be interested to try that crop. And so they have been trying it and we've been researching ways in, to increase production because that's what farming is about. You, you want to produce as much as you can because um, that's how you generate your income. And so, yeah, I've been working with a few farmers up here in, in Mossman and uh, looking at ways to increase the, the amount of fruit that they're getting off their trees. And so how did you go? Did you, did you find a way to improve the fruit set on the trees? Yeah, we did actually. So what we were looking at, um, as I said before, is I was looking at the pollinators. So worldwide, um, in all cocoa regions around the world, people have noticed this scarcity of midges um, or the scarcity of these pollinators. So there's not many pollinators around. In fact, on a single cocoa tree in a year, it might have more than 25,000 flowers produced every year, but only about 10,000 of those flowers um, sorry, not 10,000, 10% of those flowers get pollinated um, and either and further reductions from that get actually harvested off the tree. So there's not many pollinators and maybe they're not doing the most efficient job at pollinating all the available flowers that are there. So what I looked into is, okay, well, if these pollinators are so necessary, why aren't they there? Why are they scarce or why are their populations not doing very well? And so by doing some background research, I realized, okay, the pollinator is this tiny little midge, this little fly, and what this little fly needs is habitat. More specifically, it needs habitat to raise its young and to lay its eggs in. And what it likes to lay its eggs in is um, moist, organic, rotten material on the ground underneath the trees. And if you look in a commercialized cocoa farm, 
you see there's not actually a lot of this available habitat underneath the trees for the midges to utilise. So what I did is I put back a lot of the um, fruit husks that come as a byproduct of cocoa production. You get a lot of this fruit husk waste, which is the outside of the th fruit that's covering the cocoa beans. And we mulched it back underneath the cocoa trees and let it start rotting, let it decompose so that it could serve as pretty much a, a habitat for midges to lay their eggs in. And, and when we did that, we found a, a threefold increase in the uh, numbers of flowers that were setting to fruit. And then even further from that, we got um, a fourfold increase in the yield that was being harvested off the trees. It, it, it sounds like it ticks all the boxes as far as research goes. You've got uh, you, you're using a waste product, and you're improving the uh, the viability of the of the crop itself. Um, are there any other benefits from using the um, from using the mulch underneath the trees? Yeah, there is actually. We looked at another possible benefit of having this mulch under the trees, and that was uh, we also looked at the um, the populations of beneficial. Um, predators and the ones we looked at were skinks and spiders and how I mean beneficial is if these animals are present they might possibly do something positive uh, for the farms for the for the cacao trees and so what these spiders and skinks are actually doing is probably consuming a whole lot of the pet insects that might be feeding on either the cacao fruits or the cacao leaves um, and so when we put these husks underneath the trees we saw an increase in the number of spiders and skinks that was that were hanging around and um, that would possibly lead to um, increased pest control by natural biological control such as spiders and skinks um, and we think that maybe there were more spiders and skinks hanging around because these husks are not only serving as a breeding ground for midges but they're also serving to um, other other insects um, as a breeding ground um, for, for their young and for their larvae. So maybe when you have these husks around, there's more, there's more prey items for beneficial predators to utilise and so they stay around those kind of areas. So we're probably getting better pest control from having these husks hanging around as well. So better pest control, more fruit, heavier fruit and uh, a happier little uh, biodiverse farm, I guess, in the end. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I think that's one of the most important things about cocoa production because you mentioned earlier before that people are just eating more and more chocolate these days and we're trying to increase our production by making our farms more and more intensified. So we're, we're taking away all these natural ecosystem services that are actually really important and really beneficial for the plantation. But when we take them away, we have some problems. So I think as we move forward into the future and want to increase our production on our cocoa farms, we have to keep ourselves with a stronghold on on promoting these environmental ecosystem services such as pollination, natural pest control, just so that we don't lose those things completely and actually lead decreases in production because we want increases in production. Yeah, well, it sounds like you've done a really good job of getting uh, an increase in production. It's nice to hear some good news from the, uh, from the world of science for, well... I'd say for a change, but you know, every now and then we get good news, and that's uh, it's a good news story. So uh, next time our listeners are uh, chomping into some chocolate, they can uh, rest assured that in the future there will be more chocolate, and it'll be well, hopefully a higher quality as well, thanks to uh, your work, Samantha Forbes. Yeah, well, thank you. I hope I hope the same.
That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook uh, and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost, lost in, in science. science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.